Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here in the Lord's house today. And uh, praise the Lord. It's a little dreary outside, but uh, the, uh, the light of the Lord is with us this morning. It refers to that in our, uh, in our scripture reading this morning and how the light of the Lord lit the, will, will light the heavens in the new Jerusalem. We have a, a few announcements this morning, and uh, we have the uh, note here that the uh, Jesus Revolution will be playing at the uh, Regal uh, Movie Theater in Augusta, and uh, next, next Saturday, at noon, and uh, and uh, Dean and Beth are planning on going. And if you'd like to go, uh, and you'd like to arrange or talk to Dean and Beth if you want to go or whatever, uh, and uh, that will be a, and uh, I'm sure that will be a, a worthwhile endeavor. Um, and let's see, I have an announcement here that the Spencers uh, they have uh, come up here. Um, a number of times in the past, and the uh, Spencer family will be having a hymn sing at the uh, Littlefield Memorial Church uh, in Rockland, and that is uh, next uh, Sunday, the 26th at 6 o'clock. So uh, I've heard them sing before, and uh, so just uh, if you're interested, um, they'll be in uh, Littlefield uh, next Sunday. And uh, the Zoe uh, baby bottles, uh, anything, anything, any announcements on that? Anything to say, Jane? They're, they're due next week. Next so week. All right. Okay, excellent. And uh, any other announcements this morning? All right. Ian. Uh, good morning. Donna just wanted to have me briefly mention that we have a visitor here, Dawn, um, who works with Operation Christmas Child, and she's got a table set up out back with some information about the ministry, so feel free to, to speak with her after the service if you have any, any questions about that. We're always happy to, to do that uh, project around, the, around Christmas time, so thank you. That's it. All right, well, let's open this morning with a word of prayer. And dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity, again, that we have to meet here this morning with other believers. We thank you that you are here with each one of us this morning. And it says in your word, uh, where two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. We're thankful that you are here with us this morning. We pray that you would uh, watch over our service. We pray that everything that we do would be honoring and glorifying to you. And we think of other services going on across the country and the world today, all worshiping you. We pray that you would help us to live our lives as an example for you, and that we would be able to share the gospel with others, that they might come to know you as well. We pray that you just be with us as we go about our daily lives, and that we would be a witness for you. We pray that you just again open our hearts this morning for your word and 
We pray that you would show us what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our call to worship this morning will be uh, responsive reading on the back of your hymnal, I mean, on the back of your uh, bulletin. And why don't we stand and we will and we will read that through and I will and uh, you would uh, read the italicized all right make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth serve the Lord with gladness come, come into his presence with singing know that the Lord he is God it is he who made us and we are his we are his people and the sheep of his pasture enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise give thanks to him bless his name for the lord is good his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations thank you and now if you would turn with me uh, in your green book to uh, number 206 and we will sing praise the lord starry hosts, you trace the mountain peaks, you paint the evening sky with wonder. The earth, it is your throne, from desert to the sea, all nature testifies your splendor. Praise the Lord, praise the Yeah. 
praise the Lord. Raise your voice, you heights and all you depths, from furthest east to west, you distant burning stars, all creatures near and far, from sky to sea and shore, sing out forevermore. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Amen. You can turn to number 63. O God, thou art my God. singing. And if the ushers would come forward for the morning offering, please, and uh, if you have a prayer request, uh, you can just leave it, uh, put one of the uh, prayer requests in the offering plate as it goes by that are in, in the pew in front of you.
Luther, would you pray, please? Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Revelation 21, starting with verse 9, going through uh, verse 27. Uh, Revelation 21, starting with verse 9. The New Jerusalem. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to, to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 12, stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light all the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of 
and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. And if you would stand and turn now to number 344, Grace Greater Than Our Sins, amen. 344, let's stand and sing. It's in all four verses. greater than all of our sins. Amen. 
Great singing this morning, church. We're going to take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Okay, let's go to the Lord together. In the words of 1 Peter 1, Blessed are you, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, we who by your power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this we rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, though we have not seen you, we love you. Though we do not now see you, we believe in you and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We praise you, Holy Spirit for the incredible work of salvation and of redemption which you have done in our lives, all we who have come to you in the name of Jesus. And as we come to you and are softened by your amazing grace, as we marvel at the wonder of your grace which cleanses us from all sin, Lord, your mercy leads us to repentance. Your kindness and the, the cost of Christ's sacrifice on the cross leads us to consider our own hearts and how we've sinned against you even this week. We confess, Lord, that we have erred from your ways like lost sheep, that we followed too much the devices and the desires of our own hearts, that we've offended against your holy laws, that we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we've done those things which we ought not to have done. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are repentant according to the promises you've declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O oh, most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Let's take a moment now to confess our sins unto God silently. Hear the word of God now to all who truly turn to him. Surely Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a marvel, what a wonder, Lord Jesus, to know that in you we are forgiven, cleansed, healed, adopted into your family. We praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your saving death and for the life we have in your resurrection. And we praise you that even now you are ascended at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. That's our hope, our great comfort that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ if we belong to him. Knowing that, knowing, Lord Jesus, that you sit in heaven even now presently to intercede for us, and knowing your kindness towards those of us who belong to you, we come to you boldly with those things which weigh us down, with those things which we're grateful for, and we want to bring them all to you, Lord Jesus, trusting that you hear us. Heavenly Father, if we come in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, that you deliver us from all blindness of heart, from pride and vanity and hypocrisy, from envy, hatred, and malice. We ask, Lord, that you'd um, empower the leaders of your church here and across Maine. We think especially of the churches in Waldo County, that you'd give pastors and elders and servants of your church knowledge and understanding of your word, that it might be proclaimed accurately and powerfully. We ask, Lord, that you'd send forth laborers into your harvest, that you would prosper your, their work by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that it would please you to govern the hearts of your servants. Lord, that you would watch over our president and our governor and our select board and all of the lawmakers in our land. Lord, that you would enable them to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with their God. We pray that you'd bless and keep our armed forces on sea and land and air and shield them from danger. We pray that you'd show mercy on all prisoners and captives. That you'd watch over the refugees and the homeless and the hungry. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless all those who are married people here, that you would uphold them, and that, too, you would watch over the plight of the widowed and the abandoned that you would comfort those whose homes are torn by strife. We pray that you'd protect the unborn and their parents. We pray that you'd care for those who've lost children or face infertility, that you'd provide for young children and orphans, that you would visit the lonely and those who grieve, that you would strengthen those who suffer in mind, body, and spirit that you would comfort with your presence those who are failing and infirm. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen those who stand, that you would encourage the faint-hearted, 
that you would raise up those who fall. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be among us this morning as we come to your word. Father, speak to us effectively and powerfully. Holy Spirit, cause our hearts to come to life as we hear the same word that spoke the cosmos into being. For we know this is true revival, to have our hearts awakened to your word, alive to God. We pray, Lord, that that would be the case in our hearts this morning, in our homes, in our communities, in our state, in our nation, that you would revive us again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our final song before the message is number 553. You'd stand and sing 553. And let's sing the first and the last verses. 553, nearer my God to thee. Amen. we go to the word this morning, you can turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, which is where we pick up our series through the book of Genesis. Genesis 29, we're going to begin this morning in verse 31. And we're picking up on the story of a man named Jacob, who we've been following. And of course, we started following Jacob all the way back with his grandfather, Abraham. Of course, we'll remember God gave great promises to Abraham. 
to bless him, to make of him a great nation, and through him to bless all the nations of the world. And so we followed this line of blessing, this line of promise, first starting with Abraham and then passing to his son, Isaac, and now passing to his son, Jacob. And just last week, we, we followed Jacob, uh, who has sort of a rocky story, right? Jacob, whose name means deceiver, stole the blessing of his brother um, in an underhanded act of deception. And so last week we found him on the run because his brother was after his life. And, uh, and, and last week we read about how Jacob found a wife or sought a wife and ended up finding two. Because last week we saw Jacob the deceiver be deceived by his uncle into marrying not just Rachel, who he loved, but uh, Rachel and Leah, her sister. And so that's where we find Jacob. And this week we're going to begin to wade through the fallout of Jacob's marriages. And this raises an interesting question, even just as we begin, which is the question of polygamy in the Old Testament. Just often a question that's thrown at the Old Testament of why, why is it that God allowed even his servants, someone like Jacob, to have multiple wives? What's going on here? Is this some kind of tacit endorsement of polygamy? And the fact is, nowhere in the Old Testament does God endorse polygamy or call it good. We know in the beginning God created Adam and Eve, male and female. This is God's design, one man, one woman. And even from the very beginning, just the early, first couple of chapters of Genesis, the first man to enter into a polygamous relationship is Lamech. Okay? And if you remember Lamech's story, he's a bad dude. Okay? Uh, and then as soon as we find polygamy here entering the line of the patriarchs, it turns out to be a real mess. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. Jacob sort of not by his own fault, at least at first, marries two sisters instead of one, Leah and Rachel. We're going to see this begins to cause envy and bitterness and strife. These two women are at each other's throats. And then in their effort to be the favorite wife, each of them actually draws one of their servants in so that by the end of the chapter, Jacob has sort of four wives. And the end of this story is is that no one's happy with the, the arrangement, okay? So even the, most, the first and most obvious lesson of this passage is uh, polygamy is a bad idea. God's design of one man and one woman in marriage is good. Right? He's deeply good in giving us um, this pattern. But I don't, I, I don't want to focus on the mess of this chapter as our main idea this morning. I don't think that's the main theme of this chapter. Surely there's plenty of mess to go around in this family, and, and we'll see that. But the thread, which is woven throughout of this crooked path that this story walk, that this family walks, is the thread of God's sovereignty through it all. And we're going to see from, from first to last, as we walk through this, um, this, these episodes of, of Jacob. Jacob's children, that's what we're going to walk through, 11 of his 12 children are going to be born in this passage. The thread woven through the whole thing is that God is entirely sovereign over this family. 
and specifically over the opening and the closing of these women's wombs. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would take comfort, that we would take heart that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things, but specifically that God is sovereign in our lives and over our stories. And, and, and this, I think, is great reason for us to take heart. It's my prayer is that we'd see that in this, the, these verses this morning. Let's read the passage together, and then we'll pray. Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, Here is my servant Billa. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I. For women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God 
remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask, I would ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. God is sovereign over all things, and this is reason to take heart. I want us to see four reasons this morning why we ought to take heart that God is sovereign. And, and the first is that our sovereign God inclines to the brokenhearted. Our sovereign God inclines to the brokenhearted. At first, the idea that God is sovereign, that God reigns over all things, that he knows the end from the beginning, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will can, can be almost a terrifying thing. To know that there is one who holds all things in his hands, to know that there is one who holds our very lives in his hands, that we are entirely dependent on the God who made us. And it would be a terror, it would be a fearful thing if we did not know the tender mercies of this God. But when we come to know this God in Jesus Christ and to understand the love of this God who is sovereign over all things, then his sovereignty becomes for us not a terror but a joy and a deep comfort. And I want us to see first this, the heart of our sovereign God and how he treats Leah at the beginning of this passage. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The dynamic immediately in this marriage was that Jacob loved Rachel and not Leah. Rachel was the one he'd fallen in love with. Leah was the older sister, the less desirable. He wasn't interested in marrying Leah, but he was forced into it by the trickery of her father, Laban. Of course, Leah was forced into it too. Verse 30, we read that Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more, can, more than Leah. Can you imagine the, the heartbreak of, of Leah to have entered this marriage, to long for the love and the affection of her husband, which wives ought to expect from their husbands, but instead for the love and the affection of Jacob to be all poured out on her more beautiful sister. And the Lord sees. The Lord saw that Leah was hated. And he opened her womb. Do you see the mercy of God here? And Leah recognizes it in the names she gives these first four boys. The first name is Reuben. Reuben which means, look a boy, look a boy. And she says, his name will be Reuben because the Lord has looked. His name will be, see a boy, because God has seen. God has seen me. And in a similar way, a similar way Simeon is named Heard, right? 
hears. God hears, so I'll name this boy the name which sounds much like he hears. God has heard me. God has seen me. We can hear the desperation in her voice when she names a boy Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. She says, now my husband will be attached to me. There's a longing in her voice. Maybe now after a third boy, my husband will love me. And then the fourth, fourth, fourth boy, Judah, fourth boy, Judah, whose name sounds like praise. This time I will praise the Lord. She recognizes these boys are from the Lord. She recognizes the kindness of God's hand upon her. This is just one instance of many in the word of God and throughout history and in our own lives that we see that God's heart inclines to the brokenhearted. He is near to the brokenhearted. We read in Psalm 113, both of God's sovereignty and of his mercy. The Lord is high above the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who's seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens of the, and the earth? Right? God is sovereign. He reigns. And then we go on. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. God's, our sovereign God inclines to the brokenhearted. And so I'd ask you this morning, are you, do you come this morning counted among that number? Do you come this morning into the presence of God with heart broken? God, the sovereign God, is not far from you. He is near, and his heart inclines to you. And not just to those who are keenly brokenhearted this morning, actually to all of us. Because there's one sense in which actually all of us who find ourselves born into this world under the curse of sin... come in desperately needing the grace of God on our broken hearts. Jesus in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, these will be familiar to you. Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Actually, one way of summarizing the gospel is that God is near to the brokenhearted. He's blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are humble, those who are lowly. It's these upon whom God looks. And what's the promise Jesus gives? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the mourners, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The contrast here is with those who are proud, those who think they have it all together, to whom the gospel falls on deaf ears. Our sovereign God inclines to the brokenhearted. 
That's one reason to take heart. Second reason, our sovereign God responds to prayer. Our sovereign God responds to prayer. Let's look now to Rachel, verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. The covetousness goes both ways here. Leah longs desperately to be Rachel. She longs desperately for the affection of her husband, which Rachel has and Leah lacks. And now that Leah has children, Rachel longs desperately for the children that Leah has and Rachel lacks. And her envy overflows in desperation. Give me children or I shall die. I'm at the end of my rope, Jacob. Give me children or I shall die. And we read that Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And what does he say? It's a very interesting sentence, he says. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I want to ask whether Jacob is right to say this. Is he right to say this? I think the answer is both yes and no. Jacob's right in the sense that God is sovereign over opening and closing the womb. He's right in saying this. He's read up on his theology. He, he knows God's sovereign. He's right on that level. He's wrong not so much in what he says as what he does not do. This is not the first time one of the patriarchs, one of these men who's carrying the blessing of God into the next generation, had a wife who was barren. We need to, we need to remember that these stories, we, we read them in the context of the whole story. We read of Jacob's life in the context of his father's story and of his father's story. Think back to Abraham. Abraham was promised children in his old age. His wife, Sarah, was already old and barren. And God promises him a child. He promises to make of him a nation. And again and again and again, we see Abraham understand that God is sovereign over opening the womb. Doesn't always trust this, right? There's the whole Hagar incident. But again and again, we see Abraham, what does he do? He goes to God and he says, Lord, when are you going to give us a child? When are you going to give us a child? Abraham understands God is sovereign over the womb, both to open and to close it, and his understanding God's sovereignty leads Jacob to prayer. And what does God do? He answers and gives Abraham a son. Go now to Jacob's father, Isaac. Isaac, who marries uh, Rebekah, and they're not nearly as old as Abraham was when Abraham and Sarah were trying to have a child. But we read when Isaac first marries Rebekah that Rebekah was barren. She was unable to have a child. And what does Isaac do? He prays to God 
He understands it's God who opens and closes the womb. He prays to God on the basis of God's promises, and God answers. I don't think we should be unaware of those two passages when we come to this one. Because here we come to Rachel, who too is barren, and to Jacob, who too has the great blessings and promises of God resting on him. He understands that God is sovereign, and when his wife asks for help, if maybe in covetousness and anger and desperation, but she asks for help, and what does he say? Throws his arms up in the air. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Now, he's right on one level. He's not in the place of God. He can't open Rachel's womb, but he can pray to the one who can. I think what we have here is an understanding of God's sovereignty, which has led Jacob to a sense of fatalism. God is sovereign over all things. What can I do? Nothing can be changed. And this is an error people will fall into when they begin to understand, okay, I know God is sovereign. I know he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Therefore, what difference does it make that I do anything? What difference would it make that I pray? What's going to happen is going to happen. And this misunderstands the sovereignty of God. It misunderstands the way God has set up his universe. The sovereignty of God should lead us to prayer. This understanding the power and might of God should actually lead us to go to him understanding that he's made us great promises in his word that he answers the prayers of his people that he works in response to the prayers of his people we have unblushing promises in the new testament from Jesus right ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened unto you And so we see here in Rachel and in Jacob two things to reject. Right? To reject this desperate, angry fatalism in the face of the sovereignty of, sovereignty of God and instead to see in their fathers, in Isaac and in Abraham, this reason to take heart. that our sovereign God responds to prayer and that we can cry out to the God who hears, as Leah affirms. We can take heart in the sovereignty of God. We can take heart that our sovereign God inclines to the brokenhearted. We can take heart that our sovereign God responds to prayer. Thirdly, we can take heart that our sovereign God makes use of broken vessels makes use of broken vessels. After this conversation between Rachel and Jacob, things go downhill fast in terms of the life of this family. So far, four children have been born, four boys, all to Leah. And in verse three, we begin to read how Rachel offers her servant Bilhah to her husband as a way of producing children in her name. Right, and she sort of claims these children as her own. We can see that because it's actually Rachel who takes it into her hands to name these children. 
she assumes the right to name these boys Dan and Naphtali. And in naming them, you can, you can discern the bitterness, the strife, which is between these two women. Rachel said, God has judged me and also has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan sounds like the word there for judgment. For judgment. There's some dispute as to how exactly to, to interpret this. But to the best of my understanding, this doesn't have to do with a judgment of condemnation. Uh, the word judgment here is, is neutral. It can mean a positive judgment like a vindication or a negative judgment like a, like a condemnation. And from the tenor of everything else Rachel is saying here, it seems like Rachel wants this to be her vindication. Like, see, look, I have a boy now. Look, Dan. And we have sort of the same tone with Naphtali, too. Naphtali sounds like the word for wrestlings, right? And what does she say? With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Rachel sees this as her victory cry, right? I'm vindicated. I've wrestled and prevailed. And the whole thing, of course, rings hollow. These aren't her children. And it becomes clear by the end of the passage that she's not contented with them. Leah, following Rachel's example, then does the same thing. Brings her servant, Zilpah, to Jacob. And names the boys Gad, which means good fortune, and Asher, which means happy. Um, not quite the same edge of bitterness in these names, but still we see Leah's not pure of heart. In naming Asher happy, what does she say? Happy am I, for women have called me happy. She's looking around and saying, who's the wife with six sons and who's the wife with two women have called me happy what a mess this is and it sort of just keeps spiraling down and I guess the question is because th this whole story this whole book traces back to these people. It's this family on which the, the great promises, the great blessings of God rest. Right? It's, it's on this family that the promise of the Messiah is resting. Right? It's from these 12 boys that will come the Savior of the world. And I guess one question that could come up is, why on earth this family? Why on earth would God use people this messed up? Because this is a mess. In some ways, we might expect that, that the whole thing would be cleaner from the very beginning. But the mess of this family should, I think, assure us and comfort us. The Bible does not whitewash human depravity. These people are messed up because we're messed up. Because humanity is messed up. And the glory of what God is doing in this story of redemption, beginning all the way back here with these 12 boys, is not that this 
family is glorious or powerful or mighty or saving. And neither is that our story. The glory of God in this story of redemption which he's telling in this world is that God is mighty, that God is powerful, that God is able to save and to redeem and to use even weak, sinful, shameful, dysfunctional people. And that, I think, should be a great hope. We read earlier in our scripture reading about the New Jerusalem. And on those 12 gates, what are the 12 names on those gates? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, vindication, wrestling, happiness. It's these names written on those gates. It's these tribes which are redeemed into glory. Friends, this should give us great hope for ourselves that God is not interested in using perfect people as if there were any. That the whole point of redemption is that God takes sinful, ashamed, broken, dysfunctional people and saves them and uses them despite themselves. Isn't this exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12? After he's prayed to God again and again to remove from him the thorn in his side, his perennial weakness. And what does God say to him? What does Christ say to him? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It can be a temptation for us as we consider the possibility of our salvation, as we consider the possibility of service in the kingdom of God. It can be a temptation to think that our sin, that our shame, that our dysfunction, that the mess of our lives somehow disqualifies us from coming into the kingdom and of being any use. And friends, the story of this family should disabuse us of that notion. If the Lord can use Jacob and Leah and Rachel and these boys, and we'll see, there's, the story doesn't get much better. This family's a mess all the way into adulthood. But if he can use these people for his glory, if Judah, who we'll see, he's got a mess of a life, if Judah becomes the one from whose line Jesus comes. Jesus, the son of Judah. Friends, your shame, your sin, your dysfunction is not so much that the Lord cannot redeem you. It does not disqualify you from being saved through Jesus. In fact, that's actually what qualifies you in the first place. When we come to Christ, all we bring is our need of him. None of the glory belongs to him. The glory of the Christian life is that God meets us in our need and is all sufficient in supplying it.
our sovereign God uses broken vessels. He loves to. That's the glory of the story of redemption. And this should be a reason for us to take heart. Take heart. Our sovereign God inclines to the brokenhearted. Our sovereign God responds to prayer. Our sovereign God uses broken vessels. And finally, our sovereign God alone is the master of our fate. Our sovereign God alone is the master of our fate. We come now to the, to the question of the mandrakes. And we've had eight children born so far. Four, four boys from Leah, two boys uh, from Bilha, two boys from Zilpah, and there's 12 altogether. We'll get to 11 of them in this passage. So we've got three more boys to come before we're done today. And before we, we get to these three boys, we, we deal with this question of the mandrakes, where Reuben, Leah's oldest boy, Jacob's oldest boy, is out in a field, and he happens across a mandrake, which is a plant, and the common understanding is that um, at this time, this plant was considered an aphrodisiac. This plant was thought to aid in fertility. And so Reuben brings it to his mother, Leah. And now Leah and Rachel have a little bit of a negotiation over these mandrakes, because of course both of them are, both of them want to have more kids. Both of them want the glory of bear, bearing more of their husband's boys. And Rachel goes to Leah and says, please, I'd like them. And Leah, Leah has less power in this relationship. Rachel is the favorite wife. Leah seizes this moment. She says, oh, I can get something here. My sister wants something that I have. Now we can do a little trade. And Leah agrees to give Rachel the mandrakes in return for access to Jacob for a night. Rachel, apparently as the famous, as the favorite wife, had control over where Jacob slept and with which of his wives. By the way, Jacob appears quite passive in this passage and pretty out of control of his family. He's being dictated to by his wives. That's by the way. So they agree. And it's interesting because much is made over this deal about the, the mandrakes. A lot of words are spilled over it. And so it's like, well, what's the significance of the mandrakes? Why, why, are we, why is our attention drawn to them? And I think our attention is drawn to them in order to see how ineffective they are. Right? Rachel and Leah are sort of are haggling over these as this valuable thing through which they can seize control of their fate, through which they can seize control of their lives and their fertility. And Rachel gets the mandrakes, and who gets the kids? Leah, not Rachel. The mandrakes don't work. The one thing that's made clear in this whole bargain is that the Lord alone God alone is the master of our fates. God alone holds these things in his hands. And this whole exercise, both of the mandrake incident and of the, the giving of the servants, betrays that Rachel and Leah are following in the path of their husband and of their father in attempting always to manipulate the circumstances of their life 
by deception, by power, by bargains in order to achieve their own ends. They really are wrestling to get their way. And what's the result of their wrestlings? It comes to nothing. At every turn, they get what the Lord will give them. And Leah recognizes this in naming um, Issachar and in naming Zebulun. She recognizes these are gifts from God. She somewhat, I think, misunderstands what God is doing here. She seems to see them as, as a wage for her giving her servant to Jacob. The whole thing's a mess. And then finally, of course, God remembers Rachel. And it's made very clear this is not as a result of her, um, of her uh, experiment in pharmacy. It's a result of the blessing of God. God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her. And she recognizes this, right? God has taken away my reproach. She calls his name Joseph. Joseph. Which sounds both like taken away and add. I think this whole episode of the Mandrakes is supposed to instruct us in the fact that we ultimately are not God. We are not sovereign over our own stories. And we live amidst a people and we live in a culture where everyone is constantly trying to be God of, of their own lives, to take, right, take control of your life. Right? I am the captain of my fate, master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Might as well be the creed of our day. But as Rachel and Leah show, and Jacob and Laban, constantly trying to manipulate the events of your life is incredibly exhausting and it doesn't actually work. At the end of the day, we are subject to our circumstances. We cannot write the end of our story. At the end of the day, we are all in the grand story that God is telling. And real peace, real rest, cannot be found by trying to put ourselves in the author's chair. Real peace, real rest, can only be found by surrendering ourselves to the God who is sovereign, to the one who alone has the power and the authority to write our stories, to open doors, and to close them. Can you imagine how different this whole episode would have been if from the beginning Rachel and Leah and Jacob had happily surrendered themselves to the kind providence of God. Can you imagine how different that conversation would have been between Rachel and Jacob if Rachel had said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can take heart. Our manipulations of our lives will always be in vain, but we can, we can rest with Christ at the rudder. God is sovereign over all things. 
and this is great comfort. He inclines to the brokenhearted. He responds to our prayers. He uses broken vessels, and he alone is the master of our fates. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you this morning and we cast ourselves on you, knowing our sin, knowing our weakness, knowing that Christ alone can be our redemption, that Christ alone in his sacrifice can redeem and forgive us and make us whole. And so we run to you, Lord. We run to you, the sovereign God, knowing your power and your might. And we cast ourselves on you. And we ask, Lord, that this morning you would reach down to comfort the brokenhearted. That you would reach down to encourage us to reach out to you in prayer. That you would reach down to uplift those who are hopeless. That they too might be redeemed and used in your kingdom. And we ask, Lord, that as we go from here and as we go about the rest of the days of our lives, that we would entrust ourselves to your kind and perfect will, knowing that you alone are the master of our fates and that this is great comfort and great peace. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Praise God from whom all